If y'all have been blessed, let's give him a good God bless you. Amen. Thank you, Brother Dave. Thank, Thank you, Pastor. Thank I've you. got one on. Thank you. All right. Well, you guys can be seated. Thank you so much. Oh, yes. Hallelujah. We have so enjoyed being with you guys. And uh, I always enjoy coming to Burlington. Good people. And uh, God has special things for this city. So we want to, uh, we want to, we're going to receive communion this morning. Christopher's going to lead us through that. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to do some teaching on it. We're going to look at this, this whole concept. And uh, man, communion is such a fascinating thing. It really is a prophetic act. It's not just a formality that we go through. Problem is, a lot of times that's how we engage with it. It's just something we kind of rush through to get to the real the real deal, but in actuality, this meal is a prophetic act that initiates things. The difference between symbolism and a prophetic act is symbolism represents something, a prophetic act initiates it. It brings us into the reality, and God gave us this meal to be a prophetic act to bring us into that reality for us to practice His presence. And so, uh, if you look in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul talks about the, the communion meal, and he said, and the Lord showed me. It's interesting because Paul was not there when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper. All right. He wasn't there. He wasn't saved yet. But Paul said, the Lord showed me this. And he said, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he did such and such. But he, he attributes his insight to the Lord. Here's the deal. The Lord thought it was so important that we understand this meal that he gave Paul a divine download into what really happened that night. Paul didn't learn it from someone else. He said, I got it from the Lord. It's that important. So Paul had this revelation of what went on there. I don't know if it was a, a vision or a dream or whatever, but the Lord was showing him this, this meal. Now, we know that there's two parts to the Lord's Supper, to the meal, to communion, Eucharist, what you know, different movements call it different things. Uh, the Lord's Supper or communion, it's our common union. Uh, this uh, we come together around the table, and, and it's really fitting that we have set, you know, a couple churches here this morning, because when we have these two pieces, we've got the bread of His body and the wine of His blood. Now, in 1 Corinthians, he refers to that bread as the body of Christ, the one loaf, the one body. And so the loaf really represents our coming together as the body of Christ. You could make a strong case for it this way. That the bread represents my relationship with you. The blood represents my relationship with Him. The blood reconciles me to Him, but the bread represents us being one loaf. And, the, and when Paul says, if we deal with, if we receive it unworthily, what he's saying is, if we don't recognize the body of Christ, if I just think, I'm going to have a relationship with Jesus, I'm going to discard my relationship with you, it doesn't work. I mean, think about marriage. I, if I said to my wife, honey, I love your head, but the rest of you I don't want a relationship with, that would not go well. <laughs> it, uh, it, it doesn't work that way. She's a package deal, and so is Jesus. And so when we have a relationship with Him, we have a relationship with one another. And this relationship really does affect this one. And so in communion, we come around the table, and that's why Paul says, don't take of it unworthily. Don't don't accuse, don't leave a, a rift in the body of Christ and then think you can partake of it. Uh, I used to preach a message. I, I heard this outline from a guy many, many years ago. And uh, I used to preach it all the time at Teen Challenge. Uh, covenant, conflict, 
communion and uh, covenant conflict and communion. There was another one. It's been a long time. But covenant is God brings us into relationship with one another, binds us together in relationship, right. knowing that there's going to be conflict. Come on. Come on. I mean, if you, you look in the body of Christ, we end up in these eclectic relationships with people that we wouldn't be in relationship with before. When I worked at Teen Challenge, I remember one time I was watching this cowboy from California get in a fight with a deadhead hippie. You know the dead, the Grateful Dead? They, the ones that follow them all over the country? He was a deadhead. He'd been to like 150 different concerts. and He was a hippie from Nebraska, and they were in this argument, but they were brothers in Christ. And it just it made me laugh. I'm thinking, number one, it was weird that the cowboy was from California and the hippie was, I would have thought it'd be the other way around. But they had nothing in common except one thing, Jesus. And so they were forced to be in relationship and knowing that there's going to be conflict in it, it was, it's the manner in which God causes us to grow up because we have to deal with those to stay in relationship with Him. And so we take communion and that is the trigger to say, okay, we're going to make this thing right. And it's a very fitting thing at times when to partake of communion and stop and say, okay, let's, let's go and let's, let's settle some issues here. Let's make sure that we're right with everyone in the room. Uh, we're not going to do that today unless Christopher is. That's not where I'm going with it. So we got the, the bread, but what I want to talk about is the blood because the blood is the foundation of it all. It's what gives us, it, re, it, it resolves our relationship with God. And, and there's a lot of different angles we can approach this from. Uh, but what I want to look at this morning is that the blood was the solution to a twofold problem that man has. Man has a twofold problem when it comes to God. And both of those problems land under the heading of guilt, but they're two separate distinct things. The first is legal guilt, that I am a sinner before God, before I get saved. That I have legal guilt, and that keeps me from relationship with God. The secondary problem is that I have psychological guilt. And those are two different things. Legal guilt, I can be legally guilty before God, but have a, a hardened heart and not feel psychologically guilty. That's the problem of the unsaved. They're not right with God. They don't even know it. They're not, they don't feel guilty about their sin. And where it begins in our relationship with God is that we begin to feel guilty. Uh, when I got saved, I was a homeless alcoholic. I was living in the streets of Ottumwa, and uh, I, was, I was just bouncing around the streets, and I did not have any conscience whatsoever, but I came into this season of my life, I came under severe conviction. And I remember very distinctly, I was hungry, I wanted something to eat, I didn't have any money. I went into this gas station, and I was going to steal some food. And being the health nut that I am, I was going to steal some Twinkies. And I went and I reached for the Twinkies. I knew I could get away with it legally. You know, no one was going to catch me, but I knew spiritually God saw me. And I remember reaching for that and thought, oh man, there's gonna, I'm going to pay a Twinkies worth of hide for this one. And I withdrew my hand. Now that was weird for me to be thinking that way, the way I was living. But it was, that was right before I got saved because I came into a season where I became aware of my guilt before God. And so we, we, we enter into that relationship by resolving the legal guilt by the blood. But here's the problem. There's a lot of believers that they are saved. The legal guilt has been resolved. They're, they're innocent before God because of the blood. 
but psychologically they still struggle with guilt before God. And so whereas when you are when you are legally guilty but you don't feel psychologically guilty, you don't know you need God and you're on the outside and you don't even know it, the tragedy is that there's a lot of believers who have been accepted by God but can never enter into that acceptance and practice the presence of God because they still deal with psychological guilt even though it's been resolved before God. And so here's the thing. The blood of Jesus is the answer to both of those. So if we can learn to apply the blood, the blood is a weapon. The blood is something that we need to learn to utilize. There's that verse in Revelation chapter 7. We're all familiar with it. And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb. The word of a testimony. They loved not their life unto the death. If you look at the context of that, just prior to that, it talks about the accuser of the brethren. We're talking about the enemy. The accuser. The one that's always reminding you of your guilt and your past. The way we overcome the accuser is through the blood. The blood is a weapon. We, it's something we use towards the enemy. But we need to know how to use the blood. If we don't know how to apply it, then we're not going to be able to do what Hebrews puts it this way. That by the blood, we cleanse our hearts of a guilty conscience. So we need to learn to utilize the blood to cleanse our heart of a guilty conscience. Because some of you are so sincere that you are vulnerable to the enemy because you don't know how to use the blood. Because if you don't know how to use the blood, the enemy will in actuality use your sincerity against you. He will use your sincerity, your desire to be right with God. You'll have this heightened conscience and the enemy will poke on that. And what it does is it keeps you on the outside. The way has already been paid. The debt has been paid. In heaven, your paperwork says, bought and paid for. It's, they're, they're innocent. But on earth, you're struggling to enter in. And your psychological guilt, it keeps you from entering into His presence and practicing the presence of God. And so, we need to learn how to utilize the, the blood. So first and foremost, the blood is used towards God to satisfy the righteous requirement. That's the legal guilt. We're going to talk about that for a few moments here. Because... The foundation of dealing with our psychological guilt is understanding how your legal guilt has already been taken care of. If we don't understand that theologically, it's one thing to say, well, the blood took care of it. How? I don't know. Well, then you're left vulnerable because if you, don't, if you can't connect the dots, the enemy can begin to provoke you and convince you that you're not righteous. And so the, the legal Sub, the, the legal satisfaction that the blood provides provides the foundation for the psychological guilt so that we can cleanse our hearts of a guilty conscience. But if we don't understand that, then what we're left with over here is feelings. Well, I feel guilty. Or I don't feel guilty. I, 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 it's too dangerous. You know? When I woke up this morning, I didn't feel saved. It seemed too early. And I needed coffee. But I don't go by my feelings. When I first got saved, I literally, I thought I had to get saved every morning. Because I'd, I'd wake up, I don't feel saved. I don't feel... Problem is, I didn't drink coffee back then. If I'd have known, that would have saved myself a lot of heartache. But I, I always felt like I wasn't saved because I was going by my feelings. And so, the objective reality of what Christ did 
2,000 years ago is what we base our faith on. And so then we can enter into the subject of feelings. And you really can. See, your feelings will follow your thinking. And then your behaving will follow them both. And so what we've got to do is we've got to renew our mind. We've got to think right so our feelings will come in line. And so there's a lot of people that say, well, you know what? I know that I know people say Jesus loves me, but I don't feel that he loves me. But if you don't root what you feel in the objective reality of the word of God, Romans five puts it this way. It's interesting. It says there's two expressions of the love of God. It says the spirit will shed the love of God abroad in our hearts. So the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the spirit. That's an experiential thing. You ever been there? The love of God sweeps over and it's like, oh, this is glorious. I wish I lived there. Jude tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God. But that is a mental exercise. And you can't base that on feelings. He also says God demonstrated His love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice how the, what the Spirit does is internal subjective feeling. What Jesus did is external, objective, historical fact. And that's what I have to look at first. That's the foundation for the other, okay? So, real quick here. How does the blood satisfy the Father? Uh, if you look at Hebrews chapter 2, I want to say it's... Well, let, let's turn there. I, don't, I, I want to direct you to the right verse. In Hebrews chapter 2, he is quoting the, uh, the, the book of Psalms, Psalm uh, chapter 8. And uh, he says this, he says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? The son of man, you would visit him. Uh, let me find the verse for you. Uh, the son of man, okay, verse five uh, or verse six. Uh, he says, some word is testified and he quotes Psalm chapter eight. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man, you would visit him. You made him a little lower than the angels and put everything under his feet. Then he says, yet at present, we don't see everything subject to him. He first quotes Psalm chapter eight. God put everything under man's feet. That was God's original intention in creation. Creation is subject to you and I. Then he, then he gets out of Psalm 8 and he says, yet at present we don't see everything subject to him. Why? Because we forfeited our dominion through the fall. So then he introduces Jesus. He said, but we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels. What is he saying? That's the incarnation. So we have creation. We have the fall. Now we have the incarnation. Jesus is coming in to remedy this thing and rescue this thing by taking on human flesh. And it says, He was made perfect by the things He suffered. Why was Jesus made perfect by the things He suffered? Because God was getting... Jesus came to fulfill the plan that God had for Adam and Eve. I think I might have preached on this last time I was here on a Sunday morning. The, what God did is He came to... Finish his original plan. Adam and Eve were made in God's image. God God says, let us make man in our image. In the image of God, he made him. Male and female, he made them. But I would propose to you that image was potential and that making was a process. What do I mean by that? Adam and Eve were not the finished product in Eden. It was the beginning, not the end. The image was potential that was to be unfolded through lessons so that they would be more and more conformed in the image of God And so that eventually people could say, what's God like? Look at his kids. Just go to that church over there and you'll find out what God's like. You keep bumping into him and 
in the hearts of his people. That was God's intention. And so it's a process. So when Adam and Eve began to develop into what God called them, how was he going to do that? Through testing. He was going to give them a choice, and through making the right choices, we would grow in our character and become like him. Adam and Eve made the wrong decision and made a mess of things. So what did Jesus do? He became a man. And he would be perfected by the things he suffered. He would make the right choices. And so one of the things, when we talk about the blood, we need to understand that, well, in Leviticus it says this, the life is in the blood. What life was in Jesus' blood? It says in Hebrews, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Do you know Jesus was not born perfect? He became perfect. Now, that's not to say he was sinful. It, that word perfection means complete. He completed the dream of God in God's heart. I want a man made in my image. But again, that making was a process. It wasn't an event where a baby's born and now that's the image. It was a process of bringing that image to the forefront and, and so that they would, they would manifest God's dream of a man and a woman in God's image. So Jesus came and He was tempted and tested and everywhere like us, yet was without sin. And in so doing, He was being made perfect. He was, matter of fact, in, in Philippians chapter 2, it says, Jesus was obedient unto death, comma, even the death of the cross. His obedience, he was step by step, he was going to fulfill all of righteousness, John said. And so he was going through these trials, being confronted with opportunities, making the right choice, and growing into what God called him to be. There's a reason God shielded the baby Jesus from being killed by the Roman soldiers. Because he could not have purchased your whole salvation as an infant. He could have provided an innocent life, but he could not have provided a mature, perfect life. It wasn't that he just couldn't have done evil. It wasn't that he just could not have done the negative. He also had to do the positive. He had to fulfill all of righteousness. And in that way, he grew into all that God intended for him to be. And once made, Hebrews says it very explicitly, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. He had to become perfect. And that, again, that word means, in the Greek, it means to be completed. All of God's plan for man. What did John, John, uh, Jesus say to John when John said, man, I can't baptize you. I'm not even worthy to polish your shoes. Well, he said, tie your sandals. He said, I'm not even worthy to do that. He said, I must fulfill all of righteousness. That was why he came. It wasn't just that an innocent life. Uh, Oswald Chambers, anybody ever read oh, My yeah. Utmost for His Highest? Oh, yeah. that, that guy has some stout theology. Seriously, yeah. you need to read oh, this guy. Yeah. I bought a book of quotes by him, and it was one of the best buys I ever made. He, he, and he was comment. he made this statement, and I thought, man, that is so insightful. He said, the innocence of Jesus was not the innocence of our order of things. He said, innocence is nothing to be bragged about because it's never been challenged. Purity, on the other hand, is something that has gone through the fire and maintained its morals. 
Jesus was not merely innocent, He was pure. He'd been through the fire. He didn't bow. He didn't give in. He, and, and in so doing, He grew His character and He became conformed into the image of His Father. He was completing God's plan. God's plan has never been make converts, it's make disciples. And His plan wasn't to have you know, infant Christians. He wants full-grown, mature Christians conformed into His image. Jesus was the prototype and He did that. And so when Jesus poured out His life, the life He poured out was a perfected life. A life that met every righteous requirement within the heart of God. I personally believe when Jesus hung on the cross and He cried out, it is finished. I believe what He was saying is the dream in the heart of God. You know, God says, my word will never return void. And when He said it way back in Genesis 2.26, I let us make a man in our own image. Jesus was the stubborn pursuit of that original intention. He said, we're going to do it. He made Adam, Adam derailed. He said, okay, I'm just going to have to do this myself. And he put on an earth suit and came down and lived a righteous life so that he could then offer that life to the Father. So on our behalf, what Jesus did is he offered a completed life to the Father. Hebrews 9 talks about presenting that Jesus as the high priest. See, he was the high priest and the lamb. As the high priest, he brought in a bowl of blood. Once a year, the priest would bring in a bowl of blood and offer it to the Father. Now, now uh, extra biblical material tells us that they would tie a rope around the ankle of the priest. And uh, on, his, on his robe, he would, they would have pomegranates and bells. Pomegranates and bells to represent the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit. But those bells would ring. And so they would, he would offer it and they would listen for the ringing. And if it stopped, they think, oh man, God didn't. God didn't accept the sacrifice. And they'd pull on the rope. And if they felt a tug back, then oh, we're safe. Because <laughs> no one's going in. They're going to pull that body out. And it said year after year, they would present the blood. But Jesus went in and offered His blood once and for all. Because the blood of goats and calves could cover our sins, but it couldn't wash it away. It could provide temporary appeasement, but it took a perfected life so what Jesus did, it says in Hebrews 9, that He went in and He offered the bowl of blood Himself. Now I want to tell you, when I first got saved, man, I came under severe psychological guilt and I became very aware of my legal guilt. And when I got saved, my conscience was... was see, the word conscience is con, with science, knowledge, with knowledge. Because my heart had not been instructed properly, the enemy was able to leverage my, the wrong teaching and keep me in guilt, and therefore I'd stay outside the throne room. I knew heaven would be my home eternally, but I felt like I couldn't have a relationship with him until he got there. Because I always felt like I was disappointing to him. I just felt like he's like, oh man, here comes Dave again. My son bought this one. I'm stuck with it. Okay, come on in. I know, you know, you're, you're mine. And I just... That was, that was the feeling I had, like God was disappointed with me. And so I had to retrain my mind. And the Lord took me through a season and began to teach me what I'm teaching you. I remember laying on the floor in Bible school in utter despair and saying, God, I don't know what to do. I can't live for you. I don't have it. I remember thinking, I guess I only had five years of Christianity in me. 
which in and of itself shows I had some whacked belief systems. <laughs> but I thought, I'm going to try to be good enough. And I see, it wasn't even that I was no longer, I wasn't any longer doing the wrong things. I, I, I had left those, but I was on this treadmill trying to do the right things. I couldn't pray enough. I couldn't fast enough. I couldn't read the word enough. No matter how much I did, there was always more I could be doing. And the enemy was always whispering, if you're really a believer, if come you're on, really a believer, yeah. the accuser of the brethren yeah. would whisper in my ear and it would keep me outside God's presence. First John, I want to say it's, well, I'll tell you. First John 3.21, listen to what it says. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. If our hearts does not, do not condemn us, I was drained of confidence because my own heart was condemning me. You know, it's interesting. You see the enemy in the garden. And he lures Adam and Eve into sin. And then he's pretty much disappears. You'll hear him mentioned a few scriptures. But he doesn't show up again until there's another sinless man. You know why? Because once he triggers that in us, Man, he can pretty much just leave us alone. Every now and just lob a little thought and we'll yeah, take care of ourselves. And we'll keep ourselves outside the presence. And so what we need to do is we need to learn to apply the blood. So here's how it works. Jesus went in, he, with that bowl of blood, as the priest, and he stepped boldly. There has never been and never will be another man who walked into the presence, the very throne room of God Himself, by virtue of his own righteousness. But Jesus earned the right to step boldly before the throne. He was spotless and pure. And he walked in and he said, Father, I've got what you've dreamed of. I've got a life perfected. I've got a man made in your own image. Here is a perfect life. And he gave it to the Father. So the Father could rend the veil. And now he tells us, you come boldly before the throne of grace. When I, I remember it was about, during that season, the Lord was speaking to me about this. I was in a worship service and I was still working through this. I was always feeling guilty and we were in worship and I, all of a sudden I was, I saw this picture in my mind. I was outside this giant, it looked like a gymnasium and I was standing on the outside and I knew in my spirit, it's the throne room and I so wanted to go in and get in his presence and I could see the glass was like or the floor was like glass, and it, it seemed to go on forever. It just disappeared, and it was this huge, massive room, and I wanted to go in, but I felt like I'm not worthy. And all of a sudden, the Lord directed my eyesight to the, the threshold of the door, and there was all this blood splattered across the door. And the Lord told me, you'll never be able to come in unless you enter by the blood. We enter by the blood. So what I would do is I began to train my mind when I would come before the Lord and I'm feeling guilty, I would say, God, I know that I don't have what you demand in and of myself. The one thing you require me is a perfect life, one that has satisfied every righteous requirement. Not only has never done anything wrong, but has done all the right things and fulfilled all of righteousness. But I do have it in this bowl of blood because the life is in the blood and the life that is in this blood is a life that satisfied every righteous requirement. And I would picture myself giving that to the Father. And I would picture Him saying, come in. You're made righteous. And I had to retrain my mind. The blood of Christ has satisfied the righteous requirement on your behalf. 
but you need to learn how to apply it to your life. We don't have time to get into it today. But there's a very clear difference in Scripture between the shed blood and the sprinkled blood. The shed blood is given to God. The sprinkled blood is how we apply it to our own hearts. We sprinkle our hearts with the blood to cleanse it of a guilty conscience. But you've got to retrain your mind, conscience with knowledge. Begin to re-instruct your mind so that you can value the blood like He does and you will find you'll have confidence before God. You can get in. One of, one of the marks of maturity, now hear me out here, one of the marks of maturity is not that you always do the right thing. I mean, that, that is, that, that's a mark of maturity that you're, you're, you're living act righteous more and more. But one of the primary marks of maturity is that when you fail, you're able to get right back up and get right back Come in on, His presence. Because there's this human thing that, well, I, I'm going to live in the penalty box for a little while so that, you know, God will forget or I'm going to earn this thing and I'm going I'm to do some penance. And that is, that is works. You'll never find rest in God. So the way you enter is by the blood of the Lamb. So I want to encourage you this morning, when we receive communion, let's realize that what we're doing is we're, that Paul said, we're proclaiming what Jesus did. We're sending a message to the accuser, to the hordes of hell, that we're made righteous and we enter by the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Christopher. I'll get those. You go ahead. Everybody hear me? Good. Um, wasn't that a good word? Is that really good? That's such a good word. Such a, such a good word. So, um, before, before I landed in, back in Iowa, um, I had, uh, I, I, I just felt like, um, during this weekend, we needed to have a time of, of communion, taking the Lord's Supper. And um, that's not something typically when Dave and I minister together, that's not something typically we do. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, we only have a few sessions. I mean, it might seem like a lot to you, but <laughs> we've done like a five-day conference where you got like, you're going morning to night. So it's a lot more, a lot more sessions. So um, I was thinking like, how do we fit that in? And and so I think it was right as I, I got into town, uh, Dave mentioned to me that um, the pastors here said, hey, we're going to have a joint service on Sunday morning. And um, so we've got to figure out who's going to speak or maybe we could tag team. So Dave was talking, talking to me about tag team. And I said, well, actually, I wanted to find a time where we could um, share on communion. And I wanted him to do some teaching on that because I've heard him share this a lot before. And it's so good. Uh, I don't care if it's for the hundredth time. It's so good. It's so good. And uh, and so that um, 
we wanted to, uh, to do this this morning. I don't do this because it's comfortable or convenient. I mean, and let's be honest, if we just did the little trays and the little, little tiny wafers, see, I have a hard time calling it the Lord's Supper. Like, I've never eaten anything that small and called it dinner. I would be the skinniest man on the planet if that was my, if that was my supper, you know? Like, man, it's hard to call that a supper. But so um, anyways, so please uh, thank you for indulging me and allowing me to experiment. Because here's the thing. I just what I wanted to do was do communion and want to do it the way that I often will just do it at home. Um, the way that I come before the Lord with uh, communion. And, and again, as, as, as Pastor Dave said, you know, the different traditions within the church call it different things. Um, the Catholic Church calls it the Eucharist, which just literally means Thanksgiving. And I think if we're going to look at Jesus' sacrifice, the proper response is Thanksgiving. Okay? Is it, is it uh, serious and somber? Yes, on one hand, that is true. On the other hand, wow! Thank God. Like, let's overflow with gratitude and thanksgiving for what Jesus did. And um, so, uh, as Dave mentioned a moment ago, communion, our common union. That's what I think is part of it. It's really beautiful about this morning is that um, the, the body of Christ coming together, two different congregations saying, hey, we might meet in different buildings most Sundays, but the fact is we are one. It doesn't matter the color of our skin. It doesn't matter our, our ethnic or our social background or wherever we're from. The fact is God has united us in Christ. We have this common union. And so when we come before the Lord's table and we partake of this, we are prophetically declaring that we are one. That the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives within me and that same spirit lives inside of you. And it's one temple recognizing the spirit that lives in the other temple. It's like the spirit of God lives inside of me. And when I look in you, I, when I look into your eyes, I see Jesus. The same spirit of the living God that is in me is inside of you. And we are one. And that is a beautiful and a powerful thing. And so, um, so it, it's a lot more convenient to just do, um, you know, the, the little wafers and everything. I just... Um, I wanted to do this in such a way that reflects how I, I do that in my own time with the Lord. Um, and so part of it, I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you about. So the reason why I get these cups like this is because um, I want it, I like it for it to be transparent. Number one, more than just a little drop, okay? This is the blood that was poured out. How many of the Jesus didn't pour out just a drop? Like there's, like I want to drink the thing, okay? It's not just taste a little tiny drop. You barely taste it. I want to drink the thing, okay? It didn't say, it didn't say this is my sippy cup in remembrance of me. Sip it. You know, it doesn't say that. It says this is my cup. Drink, drink, okay? So we're going to drink of it. The other thing is I like that it's transparent, that like I'm going to, we're going to hold that up and we're going to see this is the blood. And we're proclaiming the, the power of the blood of Jesus. Okay. Um, so Dave already mentioned uh, about in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul made it clear. He said that um, uh, the night that 
Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he'd given thanks. Again, that's the reason why a lot of the traditional church would call it Eucharist. He gave thanks. He broke and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, their supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the blood of the new covenant. The better covenant. The everlasting covenant. A covenant that is a better covenant that releases a greater glory. A greater covenant that releases greater glory. That this... I shared this at Heartland at some point last year when I was speaking, and that I think much of the, for most of the evangelical church in the United States, I think we have a tendency to think this way. God's whole goal for Christianity is justification. It's like, are you saved? Yes, I'm saved. Whew, okay, he said the prayer, he's in. When that is not, I don't believe that's the point. Thank God for justification. Thank God for forgiveness of sins. Thank God for forgiveness of sins. I'm spared from hell, and one day when I die, I get to heaven. But here's the thing. If, if what we have is the new covenant, then what is the goal of covenant? Covenant is two people becoming one. So when you get married, you enter into this covenant to become one. And so the end goal is not justification, it's union. And so you see that throughout Scripture where Jesus says, I, I'm the vine, you're the branch. Abide in me as I abide in you. And then you jump into the epistles and Paul's constantly talking about you are in Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You've been united with Christ. He tells the Corinthians, whoever's united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. We have come into this intimate, marital-like relationship of union with Christ. We are now in Christ because of what Jesus did. I'm not just in the church on Sunday. I am in Christ. He is now my new identity and my new reality. And that blood that was shed, that he was talking about, comes to wipe away my sin, not to just make me clean, although he does, like he said, not just innocent. It's now I have perfect righteous standing before a holy God. And here's what's amazing is the greatest crisis that any of us could ever have, the greatest crisis you and I could ever have is to stand, stand guilty before a holy God. And that was already taken care of at the cross. Congratulations. Congratulations, because the biggest problem you ever faced has already been taken care of. That's good news. That's good news of the gospel. Greatest problem you could ever face, being guilty before a holy God, it's already taken care of. He's the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. So before you and I could ever have a problem, he already had a solution. That's our God. That is our God. He knew he knew the bondage we were going to fall into. He knew the corruption. He knew the, the wickedness, the perversion we were going to fall into. He knew the addictions we were going to succumb to. He knew we were going to be slaves to sin and slaves to the enemy. But he already had a solution. And the lamb that was slain before the creation of the world was slain for you and I. Yes. 
when I'm facing a negative medical report, when I'm facing negative things with my family, when I'm facing challenges in life, finances, or anything else, man, I want to view it through the lens that I serve a God who before I ever had a problem already had a solution. And there's no bigger problem than being guilty before a holy God. So if he took care of that, he's going to come through and he's going to take care of these other things. Maybe not the way that I want him to and the time frame that I want him to, but I can trust him. If God gave his only son, how much more will he not give us all things, Paul says in Romans. So he is a good God. He's a good father. And so we get to come to the table and receive of his blood and of the bread of his presence, his flesh. We get to eat of the life of Christ, knowing that he is a covenant making, covenant keeping God. We live under the new covenant. There's not going to be another one. You see covenant all throughout scripture, all these different covenants. And now you and I get to come into the greatest covenant at all. The new covenant of Christ Jesus. Sealed with the eternal perfect blood. Once and for all. For all of eternity. And now you and I get to come boldly before his presence. Boldly into his presence. It says in John 17, 23, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, that you love them exactly like you love me. God does not love you any less than what he loves Jesus. Think about the perfection with, with which God the Father loves his son. He loves you exactly the same. And then, and then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. He was condemned as a guilty sinner on the cross, became a guilty sin offering for us at the cross, took our on our identity as a condemned guilty sinner at the cross so that you and I could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That blood, that blood that was shed that we're going to partake of in just a second didn't just merely kind of cover up and like, hey, a little dabble do you. And there's this blood, there's the blood over the doorpost of your heart, but God knows what you're really like. You're really a scumbag underneath it. No, I've been given a new identity. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. I am a new creation. I am not just covered by a little bit of blood, but underneath it, I'm a scumbag. No, I'm now the righteousness of Christ, and I'm made a partaker of the divine nature, Peter says. So I'm righteous from the inside out. And yes, I'm growing in maturity so that there are habits or areas of my life that he's conforming me to his image, conforming me to the righteous identity that I possess on the inside of me. You and I have been gifted. If we've, if we've repented and we put our faith in Christ, we've been gifted with the exact same righteousness of Jesus. Can you get any more righteous than that? No. How many believe that Jesus Christ is 100% total perfect righteousness? And you were given that the moment you got saved. That righteousness was transferred into your account. And now you and I stand before the throne. We stand guiltless, blameless, spotless, and holy. This is our inheritance. This is our privileged position. So um, nobody has to partake of this. You don't have to, but you're invited to. So um, I'm going to continue to share a few thoughts, but what I want you to do is I want you to make your way up here. If you want to partake in this, I want you to grab a cup. And then with the the loaf that we have here, we got two loaves. Let's see if we can get by with just one. Uh, Pastor Dave and I were talking earlier about, you know, one loaf, one body, representing one body. Um, 
So let's break off a piece from one loaf. If we go through that, then we'll start on the second loaf. I, I just bought a second one just in case. I'm like, I don't want to run out, okay? But, um, but grab, grab, a, grab a chunk, okay? Grab a piece. And we want to um, enter in this together. So, So, all right. So, if you want to participate in this, please make your way forward at this time and grab the elements. And then you can return to your seat with the elements, and then we're going to walk through this. If this is a little chaotic, it's just it tends to be that way when Pastor Dave is leaving, leading meetings. Um, it's just kind of chaotic there with him. So. Just be careful with the cups. Because the blood of Jesus washes away all stains, but grape juice leaves stains. So there is a difference, all right? So we want to be careful with that. As you, as you are in line uh, waiting to get the elements... Um, I want to encourage you guys to, when you get a chance, go back into the Word and look at it for yourself. Go back into, I, I want to encourage you to take a look at communion through Isaiah 53. That the chastisement that was upon him brought us peace. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment he received brings us peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. I want to encourage you. Take a look at Isaiah 53 in light of communion. Think about the divine exchange. Paul just, I just mentioned it in, in uh, 1 Cor 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The chastisement that he received brought us peace. He received punishment that we deserved so that we could receive peace. So when you get a chance, I want to encourage you. Go back and look at these passages. Go back and look at them. The other thing I want to mention while you're getting this is um, 
Exodus 25 verse 30 says, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So there's this, in the, even in the old covenant, there was this uh, thing called the bread of his presence that the priest would prepare for the people of God. The bread of his presence. Now, I, I don't want to get into the controversial ideas throughout church history of different ideas on communion. I don't want to get into that, but let me just say this, okay? It was a little over a decade ago. One day, I had this thought. I thought, okay, for me, how it seems like I was raised in church, How I was raised in church thank you. was it always felt like as good old Pentecostals, we're going to rejoice in the Lord and, and do our Pentecostal thing. And it's like, oh, yeah, we probably ought to try to fit in communion a couple times a year. That's kind of awkward. How, how do we fit that in? I'm not sure how we do this, but let's try to fit in some communion thing. I don't know if anybody can relate to what I'm talking about. But it was like, let's try to fit this, this communion thing in. And it felt more like a ritual that we were doing that had to do more with shadow than reality. It felt more like just a ritual rather than this reality of who Christ is. And... And it, it struck me, like I said, a little over a decade ago, I was like, okay, if you read through the New Testament, there's not a lot of clear definition for how, what church is supposed to look like. We got some ideas from the book of Acts of how they did things. That's probably more descriptive than prescriptive. You get into Paul's writings and there's some, uh, there's some, dis there's some prescription of saying do this and don't do that. But I believe that he leaves room for a lot of flexibility on how to do church. But if there's one thing, I would say two things, that pretty much all stripes of Christians can agree upon, that we know because we see it clearly in the word, is baptism and communion. Now, we can all differ on what the, how you should do it, how often, what it looks like, what it means, and all that kind of stuff, but we see it so clearly from Scripture, pretty much anyone who names the name of Christ goes, hey, baptism in water? and communion and so i'm like okay communion man it, there's got to be more than what i experienced which was a lack of experience it's just like it was just like just this ritual and so i don't have it all figured out i don't but i've been on a journey of just going god there has to be something more to this there has to be something more to this and and it just began to um i don't know just in my walk with the lord over the last several years uh, just looking at this um this, these passages from John 6, as I was reading this, Jesus says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And then he goes down here and he says, um, there's so much here, but uh, verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? So they're complaining um, about him. 
And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. I would say under the old covenant and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So if we if we are Pentecostals and crazy charismatic balanced charismatics, all right, we can we can believe, all right, some of us, whether whether you're into that or not, some of us at times have been like uh, some ministers in our tradition of like taking their sport coat and throwing it at people and hit by the anointing. Okay. Um, there are people who have prayed over things. Um, there was a famous healing evangelist probably about 80 years ago who all these people were coming to him for healing. And he reached over to a, a fence post and said, look, because like he was exhausted. People kept coming to him for healing. and He's just wearing out. And he was just like, God, I, tr I, I release your anointing of this fence post. And whoever touched the fence post, that anointing went into them and they got healed. That's pretty crazy. I think it's amazing, but it's crazy. Okay? And so that's just us wild, crazy Pentecostal charismatics. You go to Scripture and you have something like this in Acts where what happened? People were taking, some versions say handkerchiefs, some say aprons from Paul, and they were, as people would touch the handkerchief, they'd get healed. That sounds weird. And yet there is a faith that we have and we can see from Scripture that there's a transference of like the life of God, the presence of God resting, coming into that physical thing called an apron or a handkerchief. And either way, it's weird. I mean, it's like, I don't want to touch anybody's handkerchief. That's kind of gross. And then if you're going to say it's an apron, really what he's talking about is like a sweat cloth while he was working. That's my understanding of it, okay? So he's sweating and working, and they're like, here, this was on Paul's body, and there's the, the anointing that's on Paul is now into this apron. Here, take it. I don't want someone's sweaty apron or a handkerchief. But what they tapped into was the anointing that was on his life, the manifest presence of God was transferred into this physical object, okay? Is, you might think that's kind of weird, but I'm just telling you what happened in Scripture, Okay? So if we as Pentecostals, if we can believe that, that God would put his manifest presence in a physical object like an article of clothing from Paul or a handkerchief, then how much more should we not expect that God would impart and release his manifest presence into something called the Lord's Supper, into his body, into Christ's body, Christ the Anointed One. If I'm eating of Christ the Anointed's body, I should expect Christ means anointing that I would partake in a measure of the anointing from this bread of the presence that came down from heaven. All right. So I want us to take this bread and I want us to tear it in half if you haven't done that already. If you can. And 
because Jesus' body was broken for us. Again, I want to encourage you to go to Isaiah 53, that Jesus' body was shredded at the cross. He was broken so that you and I could be healed and restored. He was broken for our healing. He was broken for our restoration. He heals broken bodies and he heals broken hearts. Let me just lift it up before the Lord. Lord, I thank you that if under the old covenant there was the bread of presence, I thank you, Lord, how much more under the new covenant with greater glory is this bread of presence. Jesus, you are the true bread of life come down from heaven. Why don't you just put this in your own words as I'm praying this out. You are the true bread of life come down from heaven. Thank you. Lord, I no longer want to eat from the empty fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want to just eat of religious knowledge. I want to eat of the life of Christ. You tell us to do that in John 6, to feed on the life of Christ. So, Lord, I thank you. Holy Spirit, I ask for your anointing and your presence to rest in every piece of this bread. Lord, we do it by faith. We do it by, Lord, these are mysteries we don't fully comprehend. All I know is, is, is you said, Paul said, this is my body broken for you. And so, Lord, I'm asking right now in the name of Jesus, anyone who needs healing in their bodies right now this morning, in their liver, in their pancreas, colitis, whatever it happens to be. Lord, I'm asking, Lord, that you would release your healing virtue into their body because this is your body that was broken for us, for our healing and our deliverance in the name of Jesus. Those who've been struggling in their mind, those who battled in their mind and deal with torment in their mind, Lord, I'm asking as, as they partake of the bread that your virtue and your life goes into us as we feed on the true new covenant it tree of life from the cross the very life of christ we feed on jesus i want us to partake of it go ahead and eat of the bread don't be in a hurry because those of us who got bigger chunks it takes longer Well, I'm greedy because I'm needy. I want to take a big chunk because I'm hungry for him. Lord, I'm asking, Lord, even as we partake of it, Lord, that you would let your healing virtue flow into their bodies. Right now, if you have a physical need in your body, I'm just going to ask you to gently place your hand on that on your body. If it's appropriate to place it on that part of your body and just say, Jesus, would you release your healing virtue? Just ask him right now. Any cancer, go in Jesus' name. Diabetes, go. Neuropathy, go. 
We speak life. We speak the healing virtue of Jesus. The healing virtue of Jesus. Now for the blood, I'd like for us to go ahead and stand. I want you to think about what Pastor Dave was sharing about the blood of the Lamb, the blood of the new covenant that gives us access. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, Christ in Christ Jesus our Lord, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. We can approach God with confidence, with boldness and confidence. So lift that blood up. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the perfect blood of the perfect lamb. Woo! We thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin and all unrighteousness. That washes us clean of a guilty conscience. And now we can come before you spotless and innocent, pure, the sons and daughters that have been cleansed by your blood that you delight in, the ones that you rejoice over, the ones that you sing over. This holy God has now made provision for us to come into his holy presence and dwell there. Lord, I thank you that the veil was rent in two. The veil to the holy of holies was ripped from top to bottom. And now we have access to the holy place. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for your blood. 24-7 access to the Holy of Holies. Woo! Thank you, Lord. You are good. And even as we proclaim this before our God, even as we thank our Father, Lord, we're not focused on the enemy, but Lord, we thank you that the, that the enemy gets to hear us declaring the power and the victory of the blood of the Lamb. Oh, hear us, O powers of darkness. We're going to let you know right where we stand in the victory of the blood of Jesus. Oh, your blood speaks a better word. We, we proclaim your death, burial, and resurrection. We proclaim the blood of Jesus over our lives, over our marriages, over our kids, over any grandkids. We speak the blood of Jesus over this church, over the body of Christ in Burlington. We proclaim the, effect, the victorious blood of Jesus over the city of Burlington. We thank you. We thank you for the blood of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Before we ever had a problem, you already had a solution. Now we drink of the cup of the new covenant in Jesus' name. Let us drink. As they, as as you um, pass your cup on, 
Holy Spirit, we thank you. I thank you. I thank you, Jesus. Lord, we praise you, Father. We honor you. We thank you for the cross and we honor the blood of Jesus. Oh, we thank you for the victory of the cross and the power of the blood. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, God, you are good. Diana, if you please come up here, if you join me up here. Oh, God. I bless you, people of God. I just, I've been on a journey with the Lord, just experimenting and taking, looking at the word and taking uh, these scriptures and taking communion before the Lord. I, I, I don't know all that God has intended for us with communion, but I believe that we have only scratched the surface and there's a lot more that God wants to release. Even as this church has been learning about the power of the blood of Jesus, even as Pastor Dave shared this morning about the power of the blood of Jesus, and I was sharing on feeding on the true bread of life come down from heaven, I bless you today to step into the reality of the Lord's Supper. There is a feast that He has prepared for us that I believe that we're going to step into even a greater dimension tonight at five as we gather in His presence, as we worship as one body, and we come before Him that, that God's going to release some amazing things. He's a good God. He's a good Father. And we are going to feast on the life of Christ. We are going to drink deep of His Spirit. Lord, we thank you for that. I, I, you so beautifully were singing, I believe it was yesterday, about the blood of Jesus. Could you just lead us in that again? All right, here we go. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other found I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin nothing but the blood of jesus what can make me whole again nothing but the blood of jesus oh precious is the flow that makes me White as snow, no other found I know, nothing but the blood of G, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. I want to, I just, I want to conclude this time with, with this, just if you would 
uh, repeat after me, just thanking God for this truth and this reality. And, and, and I want to encourage you, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, do that. Repent. Turn from independence. Turn from sin and put your faith in Jesus. He's a good God. He's a good Savior. He's a good Savior. But if we've been born again, then we have the privilege of saying these things. Because whether we feel it or not, it's true. Just like Dave was talking about the objective reality. This is true from the Word of God. Whether we feel it or not. But as we declare it, we can line our feelings up with it. So just repeat this after me. Father, I thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses me from all sin. All sin. Yep, even that one. Yeah, all sin. <laughs> and makes me holy inside and out. <laughs> Woo! Thank you for your blood. You're not tolerating me. You love me. You like me. You are a good father. And I am your child. The one you delight in. Here I am, Father. I'm your favorite one. Woohoo! You love me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for the new covenant. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Woo. Oh, God, I pray that you just prepare our hearts tonight for what you want to do tonight, that you would come in power, and God, you would establish everything you want to do in us and through us, God, and, and the purposes and plans of God for this city, God, as we gather tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Aren't you glad God is good? Yeah. Hallelujah. All right, you are dismissed. We will see you tonight at 5 o'clock, ready and anticipating God to show up. Amen. Amen.